Hey everybody, welcome to Listen Money Matters. We're just two bad mother. Shut your mouth. I'm just talking about Listen Money Matters. My name is Matt and I'm here as always with Andrew. Andrew, how are you and what are you drinking there? Awesome, dude. I am right on the cusp of water. So I'm drinking water this episode. Next one, not so much. Is that what you mean by you're on the cusp? Yeah, I guess. So what are you going <laughs> to drink on the next one? I don't know. I have to go to the uh, liquor store. We'll see. Get some tasty beers. I'm I'm out, I'm also drinking water today, and uh, so I just want to get started. Uh, if you have any questions about personal finance, please shoot us an email with your question to listenmoneymatters at gmail Also, we want submissions for catchphrases. You heard our weird little shaft in- inspired catchphrase today, and we want you to send those catchphrases over to our Twitter account at Money Matters Man. We really want to hear from you guys, and we want want to answer your questions on the show. Today, ladies and gentlemen, is Better Know a Millionaire, and we have David Stein on the line. He has a website, jdavidstein.com and silencelikethunder.com, and he's a millionaire who retired at age 46, my lucky number, to focus on investing his own money, traveling, and writing. David, how are you today? I'm great. Thank you. Oh, thanks for being on the show and talking about how you became a millionaire. So that's my first question is how did you become this millionaire? Well, it was a combination of hard work and good luck. I, I didn't set out to be a millionaire. Mm. And, and, and it's actually mo- most people don't know that I am. It, it, it's a little embarrassing in, in the sense that I live in a sort of, if you read the book, A Millionaire Next Door, I live in a small house with my family. And I started out in the investment advisory business back, and I got an MBA in finance. My undergrad was in finance. I always liked investing, and so I joined an investment firm back uh, when I was 30. Took about a $20,000 pay cut to join that firm to get into the investment business, and it was really a consulting firm. And so we would work with endowments and foundations on how to invest their money. And, And so I spent a lot of time interacting with millionaires, interacting with hedge funds, interacting with investment managers across the country because you know, our job was to find the best managers out there. And, and so through that process, I learned how to better manage money. And about 10 years ago, I came up with an idea for an investment advisory product because before we were just on a sort of a, we would consult, we would, we, would, we would make recommendations and then these committees would decide, hey, here's Here's what you want to, here's what, whether they want to do it or not. I came up with the idea, well, let's just give us the authority to manage the money. And so a partner and I, we started some seed money to, to begin a track record. We started marketing it to our clients and, and other clients. And at the same time, we bought back our company from a bank who had uh, who sold it to a few years prior. And we bought it cheap. We did a leverage buyout. That product grew very quickly. It did well. And I, I got to the point where, you know, I'm sitting around the table. All my partners are in their 40s. We've done well. And, and it was sort of who was going to make the first move. And, and I decided I was ready to uh, try something else. And so I took a red eye one, one night, flew in on a Monday morning to tell my partners I, I was ready to get out. And so they, uh, they they bought me out and and you know, through a combination of that through other investing and savings somehow I I've, <laughs> I have enough money to live the rest of my life if I am frugal and that is the key to be frugal. 
And you mentioned you have this uh, book, The Millionaire Next Door. Is that something you've written? No, no. That's that's a book that came out. It probably came out a decade ago, and it was really a, it was a. I, I think Tom Stanley might be the author. Okay. And he interviewed millionaires around the country to figure out how they became millionaires. Exactly what you're doing on on this podcast. And and what he found is most millionaires tend to be frugal. They they drive older cars. And, and a lot of them are, are business owners. And in fact, in the U.S., really the best way to become a millionaire is not through having a high salary. It's through owning your own business. Right. And you, you said it was embarrassing. <laughs> what, what makes it so embarrassing? I'm, you know, at, at my heart, I'm sort of a, a frugal guy. And so I don't, you know, I don't flaunt stuff. And I, I just, I don't, I'd rather people not know. Right in the in the sense that not not that there's anything bad about it. It's just it's just I like to go under the radar. Yeah, I'm starting to see that sort of uh, a common theme, you know, because I've I've you know we've only talked to about three or four, and you guys all seem to be frugal. So what do you wind up spending most of your money on? We spend most of it. Big ticket items is travel. So okay. you know, after I quit, we we took our family of three kids. We went and traveled in Asia and Europe for three months. And and traveling overseas can get can get a little pricey. We we used Airbnb the whole time, so it's not like we weren't staying in five star hotels. We were we were you know, sleeping in people's houses. <laughs> but um, you know, we spend money on travel, and and you know, most of, we don't spend a ton of money you know most of it the, the challenge with when you retire early is there's no income anymore i mean the most income i made last year was stuff i sold on ebay and so <laughs> so you you have this nest egg and 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 granted i invest it but that has to last 40 or 50 years i mean you kind of have to go in with that mindset that it's got to last for a very very long time right and so it's not like not, for example i had a i had a client once that they had $20 million and, you know, that was their nest egg. And, and she wanted an investment plan that she could spend a million dollars a year. And, wow. and you know, I, I don't know how anybody can spend a million dollars a year. I mean, you have to, that's you really have hard. To, you have to, you have to really work at it. Yeah. But that was her goal. And, and, you know, I have, <laughs> I have very much well less than $20 million. And so, you know, we have to be frugal and, and that's, that's always how I've, I've lived anyway. So, it's not real hard, but the reality is that nest egg has to last, and so you're sort of forced to be somewhat frugal. And you've always been frugal. Yeah, I have. I mean, I, I mean, there's, you know, the one luxury I have, and I went out. It was stupid. I went out and I, I leased a BMW once. Mm. And, you know, I live in Idaho. I live in a small town in Idaho, and and I felt kind of silly driving around, but just because everybody stares at you. I know the feeling. <laughs> So I mean, I, but I like I like cars and I like BMWs, and so I, I came up with a happy compromise. I just now drive very old BMWs. So you, but you uh, still drive BMW? Yeah, yeah, but it's an O one. I mean, they, you know, our cars have over a hundred thousand miles. So and it's an ugly color, so it doesn't look flashy, and <laughs> the windshield's cracked, so it, it you know, I look. <laughs> so are you still investing now that you're you know now that you're retired? Are you still and you know taking that money and letting it grow? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, I that's I spend a fair amount of time investing because yeah. I like it. I mean, that's why I, I write about money, economy, investing on my website because that, that's what I like to do. I just I just don't like to manage money for other people anymore. 
I, because it's hard. People get stressed out about their money, mm-hmm. and it's it's a very very competitive business. And so it, it's it's more fun just to focus on investing my own capital and then teaching others how to do it through your through your writing through my writing. Cool. Are you um? So you're managing your own money. Are you, are you consider yourself a day trader, or are you like constantly on the computer looking at stats? Oh numbers? no. Okay. No, I, I've never. Well, I did try trading once about a year and a half ago. I used to visit and, and research hedge funds all the time, and I, I went to a hedge fund uh, outside New York, and, and that's what they did. They traded. I mean, mm-hmm. literally, you, you had you had the quant traders who followed quant models, and you had these discretionary traders that. You know, basically, they they sat around and they traded, and I thought, well, how hard can that be? So I tried it, and uh, it's it's challenging. Very, you know, not individual stocks, but very macro type stuff, futures, options. So I I don't I don't do that anymore. the The way that I invest is foremost not to lose money. I I absolutely hate losing money, and so I I invest conservatively, but you keep the fees low, and and. Ultimately, I, I focus on three things. I focus on valuations. So you, you find asset classes that are cheap, and be it emerging markets or whatever. So I don't buy individual stocks. I buy asset classes through ETFs. And I focus on the level of fear and greed in the market. So when, when people are greedy like they are today, there's, there's not a whole lot of opportunity. When the fear is out there, then there's more opportunity. And then I focus on the economy and what, what's going on with the economy. And this but. sounds like somebody I know, Andrew. <laughs> yeah, I'm all about uh, sitting on the sidelines when people are getting really greedy. I mean, well, all these it, tech IPOs are, are too much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jeffrey Gunlack, who, who runs a, a double-line bond funds, he, he said to one of my partners once, you make 85% of your money 15% of the time. And, and if you look at what you know, some of the best investors I know that, that run hedge funds, they, they're not afraid to hold cash. I mean, you, it, investing is often about waiting patiently for sort of a fat pitch. Mm. And, and they don't come along very often. And, and I mean, in the meantime, you try to collect income. And, but it also depends on what stage you're, you're investing. I mean, you, you guys talk a lot about betterment. I mean, that, that's a good sort of place to start, to start accumulating wealth. They, the fees are low, et cetera. But you're in the market all the time. And, and, and when, when one invests like that, you know, I liken it to riding a roller coaster. You have to be willing to, to hold on for dear life when the market plummets and, and then don't sell and wait for it to go back up. Right. I find I don't invest that well. I mean, I, don't, I, don't, I can't do that anymore. I, one, I, I can't afford to lose 40% of my money. Because it's not as if I don't have a second chance. I mean, I, I obviously could go out and get a job, but I don't. I, li- I appreciate the freedom. And so, you know, I'm happy to earn 5 or 6% per year. And, and that's, in this environment, is not necessarily easy. So did you sit through, like, 2008? Or were you, did you, had you pulled out, like, in 2007 or something? Uh, I, I was out. I was in cash going into the summer of 2008. Because I, I saw, you know, what was happening, et cetera. And, uh, but I didn't get all my clients out because one of the things, we invested in these large institutions who invest for perpetuity. And while we reduce risk, 
we we didn't we weren't set up to pull them completely out of the market. It's just not what institutions did. But no, I was out and went back in in early 2009 because there you had a fat pitch. Mm. March of 2009, the economy was improving. People were scared to death that we were well, we were in it. It, it was going to be a depression. Right. It was almost a depression. But and, and valuations were as cheap as they'd been in in, in a decade or more. And so. so let me ask you this, because uh, looking, you know, we're basically staring China down. Their their uh, manufacturing's contracting. You know, they have like this ridiculous debt bubble in housing. What we just did. Are are you in the market? Are you nervous? What what what's your? I well, when I say I'm in the market when, for stocks, I never own more than forty percent stocks. So I mean that that would be in the market for me, just because. Well, you recall the flash crash a couple years ago. There, there's nothing to stop the market from plummeting 20% in a day, especially with all the high-frequency traders. And so mm. now, I'm always very cautious. So I'm in the market now, but I'm in very hedged. And so I, I use some derivatives to basically hedge my market exposure. Because I mean, there's two ways to invest. One, you can focus on predicting the future. Or two, you, you can basically react as the future unfolds and I call that living on the leading edge of the present. In other words, just being there and react as, as things happen. So I don't know if China, China definitely has some risk. I don't know, but they own their banks. The Chinese own their own banks and so they can prolong their debt bubble for a long time. So to sit and say now's the time. So what I look at is, is the market cheap or not? And it's not cheap. But we're in a period where the Fed is keeping interest rates at zero, and and it's quite possible this this market, somewhat of a rally, not so much a rally this year, could can go on for months or years. And so, I don't try to time things exactly. I just I just want to be in line with what's unfolding now. And if the risk gets too high, I, I will get out. Mm -hmm. But I'm in now, but I'm in very hedged, and so I know what my exposure is. And so, yeah, I'm I'm a little bearish, but then again, so you're you're very cautious, um, which I think is an, an awesome thing. Uh, what's your biggest failure? I mean, you must have had some pretty big mistakes to to get to where you are. Well, financially, the biggest failure ever we ever did that cost us the most money was the house we built back in '05, and. Which was interesting because I knew I knew there was a housing bubble. Right? I mean, I I follow this and I and I was writing about it, but in Idaho, it wasn't so much. And so I, I thought, well, we can build a house at a hundred dollars a square foot. I mean, in Vegas, they're building it for two hundred dollars a square foot. So a hundred dollars a square foot for a house is average. So mm -hmm. we build it, and and the thing about houses, you have to realize when you build a new house, it's it's like buying a new car. They they effectively depreciate because if you're if you're if the comparison are used houses that sell for $85 a square foot, then, th then your house goes down in value. And it, right. and it went down. I mean, it was paid for, though, so it just, but you, I just, we took the loss. So, I mean, it, it was a mistake in this, from a financially, it cost us a hundred grand. And because I mean, we lost about 25% on that house. And are you still but, under? They sold it. Somebody knocked okay. on our door and wanted to buy the house. And, and in, in my mind, it was a sunk cost, right? The money was gone. Uh, 
Mm. We didn't have a mortgage. It's worth what it's worth. And so we sold it and moved, in, moved into something smaller. And not that it was that big, but just something, you know, we moved into a $150,000 house instead. Right. I wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, your travel because you, sure. write a lot, you write a lot about traveling. You seem to enjoy traveling. What, what, I, I'm, I'm always curious on why traveling is so appealing. Like, what, what do you find uh, appealing about it? I like the spontaneity of it. I, I, I like showing up in a country that I'm not that familiar with, where I don't understand the language, and just, just being amazed about what's there. And or even within the U.S., you, you show up in a city. I just I like getting lost. So you, mm. we were my wife and I were in Portland last week. We wanted to go to a particular store. We put it in the iPhone. We turned the the voice lady on mute. <laughs> took a wrong turn, and you know we got lost. And, yeah. and then you just we ended up in this neighborhood of Selwood, which I never heard of, and just kind of walked around. And I just like the variety, the variety, the 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 surprise factor. And just being amazed about how many ways there are in the world to live. And just, I mean, you, I spent so much time looking at money and looking at digits quantitatively. And then when you go out and you realize, you know, here's how people really live mm. in Japan or Korea. It's fascinating. What was your favorite place to go to? Japan. Really? By far, Japan. Yeah, just because... In, in the investment business, Japan was sort of the lost decade. They were always the black sheep of the economic world because their stock market stunk. And so when, when I went to Japan about three or four years ago with my son, I, I was absolutely amazed that you know, here was a country that supposedly was suffering a lost decade. And I remember having dinner with a, a friend of mine that lives there uh, from Germany. He'd, he'd been there 20 years. And he said, if we're supposed to have a lost decade, somebody forgot to tell us. And, and, you, and you look at Japan, their unemployment rate's 5%. The place is incredibly clean. You, you don't see graffiti everywhere. The people are, I mean, even the taxi drivers wear white gloves. I mean, it's just, the word I would use for Japan is just reverent. I mean, not mm. that they don't have problems, but it's, it's just an amazing place in terms of just how respectful people are. And it's fascinating. Was there any city in particular in Japan that you liked? No, I mean, though, Tokyo is a nice town. I mean, it's it's surprisingly, for being so large, it's surprisingly quiet. I mean, you huh. compare it to New York City, it, it's it's incredibly quiet. You don't have taxi drivers honking to communicate. I mean, they don't honk, and so it's you you would you wouldn't realize how big the city is because of how how quiet it is. So, but all, you know, all the towns in Japan, Kyoto's nice, Nara, they're all. They're all wonderful. Do you go there frequently, or is it just a you just went there once or a few times? Uh, we've been back twice, and, and my daughter wants to do some studying there next spring, so we're going to go for uh, two or three months next spring. Cool. And do you practice uh, when you do travel? I mean, you're frugal at home. Are you frugal when you travel? We are. Yeah, we we, we try to be. So we 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 stay at we rent houses through Airbnb. Mm-hmm. Which you you can get some great deals on Airbnb, especially. When, I mean, we were traveling with a family of five. I mean, hotels, particularly in Asia, are small. So yeah. you have five people. You're, it's not one hotel room like you can do in the U.S. You, in fact, we we were forced at one point. We <laughs> we had we had an issue when you go to tr- quick tip on Japan. 
make sure you get money at the airport from the ATM because not every ATM in Japan, in fact, most ATMs in Japan do not take American cards. Hmm. And so we, we got off the plane, we took the train into the city and had absolutely no money. I, didn't have, I had no cash with me. And I, and I went to, to pay, you know, buy a, another train ticket and, and we couldn't get any money at all. And so we ended up going to this hotel finally after looking for three hours for an ATM. We couldn't find an ATM. It's, it's midnight. And we finally went to a, to a hotel hoping they would take a credit card. And, yeah, they had rooms. But we had to buy three of them. Oof. Five people, three rooms. <laughs> That's the kind of hotel it was. It was sort of a businessman hotel. Right. And so but that was expensive. I mean, that was $350 for that one night because you had to buy three rooms. So when we travel, we're frugal because you, you rent houses. Yeah. And you, you tried not to eat every meal out. And so you can travel cheaply if you, if you try. And even the, the airfare has got to be the most expensive part. It was, but you look, I mean, I think on that trip, we ended up getting tickets for 800 bucks. I mean, I thought we were, we were going to go from Asia to Europe. And I thought, well, I'm going to get one of these around the world tickets that, that some of these airlines market. Well, they're, they're five, ten thousand dollars $10,000. This is silly. So we ended up buying... You know, we flew to Asia and actually had to fly back to the States and then to Europe because it was ended up being cheaper. So anyway, you can, you can get it done. Why did you decide to retire at 46? Why was that the number? Or was that, and, and when did you decide that? Uh, I decided that in, I guess it was fall of 2011. And it was, you know, I'd been thinking about it. You know, one, one of the things, I, I was concerned to the impact on my partners because I, I was our firm's chief investment strategist. I, I was co-leading a research group. So this was not going to be something easy for the firm to communicate to our clients. But I, I remember I was in Carlsbad, California. I was speaking. We used to manage money for financial planners. And I was speaking at this conference. And I remember looking at that week's performance numbers relative to the benchmark and and that week they stunk, and I just I remember saying, I just can't do this anymore. I, I, I was just tired of competing by trying to outperform my market benchmark. And I also found that the way that I wanted to invest was not necessarily how our firm was investing, because mm-hmm. I had to manage a research group, and I changed. And so I, I decided that, that that day I booked a ticket to fly back to Ohio where our, where our headquarters were. To, to tell them. And, and so there wasn't, I mean, there wasn't, it was just sort of, you kind of, you just kind of know that, that it's time. I mean, there was enough money there. I knew that I could, if I lived frugally, I'd, I'd have enough to live on. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was ready to try other things. And I was just tired, I was just tired of managing money and I was tired of competing in that way. Was it stressful? I mean, yeah, but you get used to the stress in yeah. the sense that, because I I'd lived with it for so long, but now that I'm away, it's just it's just so nice not to have to worry <laughs> about what it, it, it's all the second guessing. That, that when you manage money for others, people are always second guessing. Why are you doing this? What what do you think? Yeah, and because you make mistakes. And your average fund manager, they you know you're right about two thirds of the time. Mm-hmm. So you make a lot of mistakes. You know, and you said uh, you said you were competing against the the market benchmarks. Do you mean like the the Dow and S and P stuff like that? Right, right. In the in the institutional world, 
what matters is less absolute performance and re it's relative performance. So how, you know, we had a balanced benchmark that was made up of the S&P 500 and some bond indices. And so you're always compared to, did you outperform the benchmark this quarter or this year? And that, that is the measure of success. In other words, institutions are willing to lose money and get more upset if you make money but trailed the market versus whether you lost money. I mean, and it's, it's a strange mindset because these, these institutional dollars are managed by committees and, they, and they're competitive. They're competing with other schools or other foundations. And so from that aspect, it, it's a challenge. So if it's so difficult to beat these indices for, for the average person, do you think they should just buy something that tracks these indices, like set it and forget it? Yeah, yes and no. It, it, in terms of is your choice to find a manager that's, that's, that has to predict the future and is trying to outperform by predicting the future, you're better off to use passive management. I, one of the things that concerns me, though, is we've sort of gone too far the other way. In other words, taking your money and just leaving it sit and ignoring it, it's sort of, it, it can work, but if you don't have the temperament to, 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 to ride the market down. I mean, there are opportunities where asset classes get very, very cheap, and, and you can adjust your mix. And so the, the way that I like to invest is I call it catch the popping corn. In other words... When you buy an individual stock, that's a very specific prediction that something's going to happen. And, and the more specific the prediction, the more likely something's going to go wrong. Whereas if you buy a basket of undervalued securities, so say back in 2009 when emerging markets were selling at single-digit type price-earnings ratio, they were dirt cheap. You buy an ETF or a basket of those, then it, it's like catching popping corn because you know when you pop corn in a corn popper, you don't have to predict which piece of popcorn is going to pop. If you buy an entire basket of undervalued securities, you don't care which one's going to pop and do well, which one's going to appreciate in value because you've bought an entire basket. And so I, I shift around my baskets of securities and you can do it through index funds, you can do it through ETFs, but you can adjust tactically based on, on valuations as opposed to just sort of buy and hold and ride the roller coaster up and down all the time. But it, it's that's that's some people like to do that, which is fine. But I, I don't have the temperament to to buy and hold. Hmm. But, but I don't trade every day either. I mean, I it went, and the way that I manage money is it now is is similar to how I manage for institutions. So we would make two to three trades per year, and that's it. And because what I found, and the way that I developed this way to invest is we would research money managers. So we were always seeing stock ideas from the best minds out there. And I, and I came up, you talk about a fair, it came up with this idea. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the top holdings of our top tier managers and I'm going to put them in a portfolio. And so I started back testing. I got, I got all these holdings. I put them in a portfolio and I thought, these are the best brains in the business and these are their top ideas. This is a slam dunk. And we're going to make a ton of money with this idea. And so I, I spent the summer, I think it was the summer of 02, back testing this thing. And, and, and so I'm, I'm getting the performance and then comparing it to the market benchmark. And there wasn't any excess return. And I thought, how could that be? How could the either, either we were lousy at picking stock managers or there was something else going on? And, and what I found was much of what is touted as outperformance by managers 
is their factor exposure. So, you know, what's their value till? What's their yield? So things that they happen to get the sector right. So when I put all these holdings together in a portfolio and optimize it, there wasn't any return. And I thought, well, hey, I can come up with a portfolio and just use exchange traded funds, and I could put in my own factor exposure based on what is cheap. And that's, that's how we started marketing to institutions, and, and that's, that's still how I manage today. You know, there's, there's some little more wrinkles that you can do individually that I do and focus. For example, I invest in closed-end funds, which are like mutual funds, but there's a limited amount of shares. They trade on an exchange, and they, they can sell for discounts to the underlying value. So you can buy a, a basket of securities for $0.90 cents on the dollar. I mean, you know what they're worth because they strike a net asset value every day, like an open-end mutual fund. Mm-hmm. But the share price is actually less than that. And that, that's an interesting area because institutions can't invest there. They're, they're too illiquid. Institutions can't get money. So it, it's a very inefficient area of the market. And, and so I, I tend to invest there too, but only funds that are at a discount. Well, I, I actually like your, uh, your analogy with the popping corn. That's a good analogy. Because uh, it works. It works. Yeah. It does. For sure. So um, just sort of to wrap things up, I just wanted to ask, uh, now you're, you're retired now. You have the money. You're still investing. Is it is it as stressful now because you you know you have this uh, this sort of nest egg that you kind of have to make sure it doesn't you know you know depreciate or, or dwindle away? Is it is it does, does that stress you out to have that there? I've gotten used to it. Okay, I mean initially, but you sort of get used to not having any money come in, right? Other than than dividends, and so no, not really. I mean, I, I it's. It's worth the trade-off of complete freedom because mm-hmm. retires it. I listened to your, your podcast a few weeks ago. We were talking about, I think you were talking about early retirement or yeah. retirement in general. And, and my definition is a lot like yours. I mean, I, retired to me, in fact, it's actually, I don't even like to tell people I'm retired because it, it, it invokes the impression of sitting around watching television <laughs> or playing golf. Right. I mean, I work as hard now as I do because in many ways I'm doing the exact same thing. I'm just writing. I mean, I, in my old job, I used to write. I used to speak. I do that now. I just, I, nobody pays me for it, so. <laughs> which is an adjustment. Right, right. But no, it's not, it's not stressful from that standpoint. Okay, but cool. I, I invest in, it would be stressful if I was 60 to 70% yeah. exposure to the market. But if I know the portfolio is not going to fall 20% or even 10 Mm-hmm. I don't find it stressful. It's harder to invest now. With, with interest rates so low, it's, it's much more challenging to invest because it, it's just, there's just not the opportunity that, that there used to be. But the market will fall. I mean, that, that's when you look, at some point, it's going to fall 30 to 40%. I mean, that's normal. Will it be tomorrow or six months from now? I don't know. But at some point, opportunity will be there again, and that's that's the most fun time to invest mm. when everybody's terrified, and you can say, "This is cheap," and you can be confident that things ultimately will work out. Right. So, what's the single most important thing you've learned about yourself or about money after you became a millionaire? The single most important thing. <laughs> yeah, it might be a big question. Yeah. That's a tough one. On or just an or, an or just one important thing that you've that you've learned from from your experience. 
Well, just to, to keep trying new things and, and keep experimenting. I mean, that, that, that's what makes life interesting. I mean, I, you know, I launched a site right after I left my, my former company because I thought, hey, I'm going to keep investing because I, I do well and I'm going to sell a newsletter. I launched this site. In fact, it was still jdavidstein.com, and I hated it. I mean, I was terrified somebody was going to hire me. And, and slowly, as over time, I realized, and I've come to accept, you know, here's what I like to do. I like to teach, you know, I, I'm writing, I'm finishing up a book just to teach people about, about the economy. Because one of, the, this just dumbfounds me, the ignorance, uh, not, not intentional, of people don't understand how money works. That money is digits, that it can be created out of thin air by banks and government. And that fundamentally changes how people should invest. Because if money can be created out of nothing, then money effectively has no value. The only reason why money has value is because it can easily be converted into a real resource, something that can actually generate income. And so one of the, 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 I guess to ultimately answer your question is just, you know, I've learned just to keep plugging away, keep experimenting, keep trying things, and, and enjoy life that way. And obviously to, to be helpful to others in and, and, and any way you can. Well, that's a good place to end. And, and David, thank you so much for being on. Uh, your website, jdavidstein.com and si- silencelikethunder.com. Where'd you come up with that name? It's from a book uh, by uh, Suetsu Yanagi called The Unknown Craftsman, and it, it's a Japanese phrase that effectively means it, it, it's, a, it's a very much a Buddhist-type phrase. So uh, I, it was in that book, and I, I like the phrase because ultimately it, it's a, it talk about reticence. It, it talk about, which is why I don't like to go around telling people I'm a millionaire. It, it's sort of be under the surface and under the radar. So. Cool. Is there anywhere else on the Internet people can find you, social media or anything? Yeah, I'm on tw- I'm Twitter, at J.D. Stein. Excellent. LinkedIn, but you can see that on my site. So Cool. Perfect. Well, again, thanks for hanging out with us today. I really appreciate you guys you coming on and, and uh, you know talking about being a millionaire, which I know Great. you thanks like to keep under me. the radar. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so uh, if you'd like us to answer any questions, please email us at listenmoneymatters at gmail.com. We really want to hear from you guys. And if you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher, wherever you listen. A review would mean the world to us. We love... And we will read them on the air when we get some good ones or bad ones. We'll read them regardless. And uh, we always talk about this money management tool called Mint. And we highly recommend you signing up for it because it's totally free. Andrew and I both use it. And uh, we wrote a book on it called Mastering Mint, Mint, which you can find at MasteringMint.com. And if you enter the promo code podcast, you'll get five bucks off. And last but not least, uh, if you want to learn more about personal finance – and money management. We're always writing new stuff and posting up new episodes at listenmoneymatters.com. And of course, visit jdavidstein.com and silencelikethunder.com. And again, thank you for coming on. And that's it. So Andrew, uh, take it easy, bud. And we look forward to the next episode. Later, man. All right, later, guys.